0: chapter 18 is where we'll begin today. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to make your way over to 1 Samuel 18th chapter, and that's where we'll be in a few moments. So good to see all of you out this morning. We appreciate all the guests who are here with us. We have several. We thank you for being here, and uh, we hope that the services thus far have been encouraging to you as you have been so encouraging to us. I really appreciate those who have led in our worship and directed our hearts to the Lord today. Uh, the song leading has been fa- fantastic, Adam. Uh, Blake, that was a wonderful scripture reading, and the prayer was very heartfelt, Evan. I really appreciate that. And so we'll get started here in First Samuel chapter 18 and hear what the Lord has to say to us through his word. With five smooth stones... And a slingshot, the young, lowly, rugged shepherd boy with beautiful eyes, by the name of David, became a celebrity overnight. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, after David slays this Philistine giant, He and Saul are entering into the city, and the text says that the women from all over Israel begin coming out of the woodwork, and they're singing praises, and they're dancing, they're playing musical instruments and tambourines, and they're all crying out to one another, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. I'm just going to pause here. That little song that those women were singing was highly offensive to Saul because Saul was king. Saul was the man. Saul was the head honcho. He was the big man on campus. It was Saul who was the fierce warrior. It was Saul who, chapters earlier, listened to the people cry out, long live the king. It was Saul who was like no one else. And it was Saul who stood shoulders above everyone else. But here, Here in this passage, here in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it was David who was the man. It was David who was the fierce warrior. It was David who the people were singing praises and giving glory and honor to as a fierce warrior. And so because of this, Saul is highly upset. The text says in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 8, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul was right to ask himself this question. What more can David have but the kingdom? If you remember just a few chapters earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the kingdom was stripped away from Saul. Saul was rejected as king because of his disobedience in battle. The kingdom was stripped away from Saul, and it was given to that young, lowly, rugged shepherd boy with beautiful eyes, David. And so Saul was right to ask that question, what more can David have but the kingdom? And the text continues to say in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 9, And Saul eyed David from that day on. From that day on, David became a fugitive. From that day on, David became a vagabond, a wonder. He became Israel's most wanted man. From that day on, King David became the enemy of the state. All throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we see time and time and time again, Saul trying to take away David's life. Saul hunted David like a dog. I counted 14 different times in scripture that Saul tried to kill David. The first is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 10. In the next verse, the Bible says, the next day A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. All throughout scripture, we see Saul time and time and time again trying to take away David's life, trying to take away the king's from David. But he's unsuccessful. We see another instance in the latter half of chapter 18. In chapter 18 in the latter half, we see that Saul tries to convince David to marry one of his daughters. And if if David were to marry one of Saul's daughters, he would have to pay Saul, the father of the bride, a bride's price. Saul would set the bride's price. He would set that price to 100 Philistine foreskins. To Saul, this was an impossible task. There is no way in the world David would go out in battle and kill 100 Philistines and bring them back. And so Saul's point in having David go and get these Philistine foreskins was to have him killed in the act. But we know that, again, David was a fierce warrior. And he not only kills 100 Philistines, he kills 200 Philistines and bring back their foreskins. The text says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, in verse 27, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that David was, that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. All throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we see Saul hunting David like a dog, trying to strip the kingdom away from him. He tries again in 1 Samuel chapter 19. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, as as David has, has come back from battle, he slayed a multitude of Philistines. Saul is extremely jealous at this fact. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 9, while David is sitting in the household of Saul, a harmful spirit, 1 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 9, a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. This is the third time, the third time that David's sitting in the house of Saul, playing his harp, minding his own business, and Saul is throwing a spear at his head. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? All throughout the book of 1 Samuel we see Saul hunting David like a dog. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Saul tries to convince his son, Jonathan, to hand David over and to be killed. Jonathan tells his father, I'm not going to do that. Why would I I take an innocent man's life away? Saul is upset with his son. Saul feels betrayed by his son. And so we see that because... Jonathan wouldn't hand David over to him to be killed. Saul tries to kill his own son Jonathan. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 20 in verse number 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, "You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness?" verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him, so Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Saul was a very crazy man. He was insane. He's throwing spears at David. He's throwing a spear at his own son. All throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we see that Saul is so determined to take away David's life and to take away the kingdom from him, that here in this passage we see that he's even willing to kill his own son. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, Saul feels betrayed by all of the priests and he slaughters 85 priests of Nod. Not only does he slaughter 85 of God's people, he slaughters men, women, children, and all of the cattle and all of the oxen in the land because they would not hand David over to him. King David was the enemy of the state. He was the hunted. He was the prey. All throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we see Saul is after David's life. And so we make our way over a couple of pages to the right, to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we learn that over time, David has, has gathered together a large following. There are about 600 men who have come to him to support him and to protect him. And so David and his men are still fleeing from Saul. They make their way into the wilderness of En Gedi. This is the wilderness of En Gedi. During my trip to Israel, I had the chance to visit there. This is where everything that we're about to read in 1 Samuel chapter 24 happens. And so David and his men are running away from Saul. They're in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul and his men are pursuing David and his men. And then all of a sudden, the tables turn. All of a sudden, David becomes the predator, and Saul becomes the prey. All of a sudden, David becomes the hunter, and Saul becomes the hunted. All of a sudden, here in the wilderness of En Saul's days are numbered, and he has no idea. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 24, in verse 1, When Saul returned from following the Philistines... He was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. This is a cave in the wilderness of En Saul and his men find this cave in the wilderness of En and it says that Saul went to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Can you imagine what's going through David's mind at this point? The man who has tried to take away his life for so many years. The man who has hunted him like a dog. The man who has stalked him. The man who has made his life miserable is standing right in front of him an arm's length away. And the prey has no idea. The text continues to say in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse number four. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. To us, this makes absolutely no sense. Why in the world would would, would David allow this man who has hunted him for so many years... ...to just simply go away without any type of consequence? That doesn't make any sense to us. But ladies and gentlemen, what doesn't make sense to us... ...what perhaps didn't make sense to David's men... ...they said, hey David, this is the day that the Lord has given him into your hands. Do with him what you wish... That doesn't make sense that David just let Saul go free. It doesn't make sense to us. It didn't make sense to David's men. It may not have even made sense to David. But David resisted the wisdom of this world. And he submitted himself to the wisdom of God. He didn't listen to those men who said, take away David's life. Because that wasn't the right thing to do. That wasn't the godly thing to do. That wasn't the wise thing to do. Here in the cave of compassion, compassion was shown because worldly wisdom was resisted. But not only that, here in the cave of compassion, compassion was shown because David saw the good in other people. David was able to see the good in others. If you notice here in this passage, David's men refer to Saul as the enemy. But in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10 of the text, David refers to Saul as his lord, lowercase l, his king, God the Father's anointed. They see Saul as an enemy. David sees Saul as a king. David saw something special in Saul that the other men did not see. He saw the good in Saul. And so... In the cave of compassion, compassion was shown because worldly wisdom was resisted. Good was seen in others. And thirdly, reconciliation was sought. As the story continues in 1 Samuel chapter 24, in verse number 8, the text says, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. He let Saul leave the cave, and the text says here in verse 8 that David arose and he left the cave too. But not only did he leave the cave, he called out after Saul saying, My Lord, the King. David spared Saul's life, allowed Saul to leave the cave. And his first reaction was, It wasn't to sit back with his men and talk about how awful and how horrible Saul was. That's not what he did. His first reaction wasn't to to, to leave that cave and tell Saul how awful and how horrible he was. His reaction wasn't to to allow Saul to leave the cave and then he and his men just just go away and ignore, ignore the situation and act like nothing happened. No, when Saul left that cave, David left the cave. And he called out to Saul, and he had a talk with Saul. He sought reconciliation. The text continues to say in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and verse 9, And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hands in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David didn't sit back and gossip and slander the name of Saul. He didn't avoid Saul. He went to him and had a conversation with him. Why are you listening to all of these people who say I'm after your life? Why do you think that I'm trying to to do you harm? I could have done you harm. You were standing right in front of me. I cut off the corner of your robe. And if I could cut off the corner of your robe, I could have cut off your head. I could have taken away your life, but I didn't. And so for that reason, you should know, I don't, I'm not here to do you harm. I'm here to do you good. He sought reconciliation. He had a conversation with Saul in the cave of compassion. But not only that, fourth and finally, in this cave, David allowed God to be the judge. He allowed God to be the judge. As the conversation continues in 1 Samuel chapter 24... In verse number 12, David continues to say to Saul, may I judge between me and you. No, may my men judge between me. No, David says in verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. He allowed God to be the judge. Verse 13, the text continues to say, As the proverb of the ancients says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? Verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. David is saying to Saul very simply, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I don't have control over this situation. I'm not going to try to get revenge. I'm going to allow the Lord to be the judge. I'm going to allow God to take care of this situation. I'm going to let God be the judge. And Saul's response to this is remarkable. Look at the next verse in verse 16. Bible says, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. In this cave, because David resisted worldly wisdom, because he saw the good in Saul, because he saw Saul as the Lord saw him, Because David um, sought reconciliation, because he didn't talk bad about Saul to his friends, because he didn't avoid Saul, but because he had a little talk with him, because he sought reconciliation, and because in this moment of conflict, he allowed God to be the judge and allowed God to take care of the situation. Saul was humbled and he was remorseful. And he was able to see the love, the grace, the mercy, and the compassion of God through David, in the cave of compassion. Today is July the 29th, 2018, and we, just like David, and we, just like Saul, are living in a world that is full of conflict. People don't always get along. People don't always like each other. People butt heads. People fight. People fight have conflict. We're living in a world full of Davids, and we're living in a world full of Saul's. At some point or another in your life, you have either been David, you have experienced misery from someone else, or perhaps you have been like Saul, and you have made someone else's life miserable. Maybe you've been on both spectrums. But whatever the case is, all of us at some point or another in our life have and will experience conflict. And I'm not here this morning to tell you that we have to avoid conflict at all costs. Because we can't. It's a natural part of life. But what I am here today to tell you is, God's people don't bask in conflict. They don't relish in conflict. They don't avoid handling conflict. God's people resolve conflict. And so we ask ourselves this morning, how do I resolve conflict? We resolve conflict the exact same way way that David resolved conflict. The first thing that we have to do is resist the wisdom of this world. We have to resist worldly wisdom. So often in life, when someone slaps us, we want to slap them back. When someone steals our candy, we want to steal their candy. When when, when someone says something bad to us, we want to say something bad to them. That's the wisdom of this world. That's what makes sense to us. That's what makes sense to people outside of these four walls. That's what makes sense to human nature. But ladies and gentlemen, we're at conflict with someone. We have to resist that thought. We have to put that thought captive and trust and rely on the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. The wisdom of this world is futile. It's empty. It comes to nothing, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 19. In fact, not only does the wisdom of this world come to nothing, the wisdom of this world will take us to hell. The wise preacher Solomon would say in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12... ...that there is a way that seems right to a man. It seems right to slap someone who has slapped us. But guess what? When we do that, it will take us to hell. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. We have to resist the wisdom of this world... ...and seek and rely on the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But not only that, we have to see the good in others... Saul was was a man who tried to take away David's life on multiple occasions. Saul could be considered David's enemy, but David didn't consider Saul an enemy. He considered him to be his lord and his king. He considered him to be the person that God had anointed. He saw the good in Saul. Likewise, we too have to see the good in other people, even if they have made our lives miserable. We have no right to treat our fellow man anything shy of someone who has been created in the image and in the likeness of God. All men, whether they are good or whether they are bad, whether they are nice to us or whether they are mean to us, have been created in the image and in the likeness of God, and God made all things good. And we have to recognize that. When our wife upsets us, see her as a fellow heir to the grace of God. When our children make us mad, see them as a gift from God who we have been entrusted with. Children, when your parents upset you, be thankful that the Lord blessed you with parents who love you. When, when our fellow brother or sister in Christ or someone at work or school or anyone out in the world upsets us, See them as someone who God created and someone who God loves so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for. See the world through that lens. And when you do, so many problems will be avoided and diffused. When we have conflict with other people, see the good in them. We must also seek reconciliation. David sought reconciliation with Saul. He didn't talk bad about Saul. He didn't avoid Saul. He didn't curse Saul to his face. He had a conversation with Saul that was very, very effective. We must do the same. And I think this is probably the hardest thing for for me, at least, to do is to seek reconciliation. So often when people wrong us, we want to talk to our friends about them, tell our friends how awful they were. Or or we'll actually go to that person and and tell that person how awful they were to their face. Or what most uh, often happens is is we avoid that person. We just avoid um, any further conflict with that person. We don't take care of the situation. We don't seek reconciliation. When we have conflict with other people, we have to go to them and seek reconciliation. Jesus would tell us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23, turn there with me. Because I want you to see this. Because I think this is probably the most common thing that Christians don't do when they have conflict with other people. Matthew chapter 5, and verse number 23, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, verse 24 Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Leave your gift at the altar. Stop everything that you are doing and go and be reconciled to your brother. Don't avoid him. Don't talk bad about him. Don't curse him. Be reconciled with him. Jesus would say further in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18. Verse number 15, please turn there. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, we're talking about how we have to seek reconciliation with our brothers and our sisters in Christ or people out in the world when they wrong us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell your best friend about it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell your preacher. If your brother sins against you, go and tell your elder. No, that's not what he said. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's what you do first. Is there a time to, to, to tell your elders about a problem that you may have with someone? Yes, yes, there is. But first, Jesus says, we go and tell our brother who has sinned against us his fault. Between you and him alone. And after you have done that, guess what Jesus says? You have gained your brother. Because David sought reconciliation there in 1 Samuel chapter 24, he gained his brother Saul. Saul was remorseful. And when we seek reconciliation with our brothers or our sisters or people out in the world who wrong us, we too will gain them. This is how we handle Conflict in a world that is full of conflict. Fourth and finally, we must let God be the judge. We have to let God be the judge. David allowed God to be the judge. David didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't kill Saul when he could. He allowed God to take care of the situation. And we too must allow God to take care of the situation. Don't take matters into your own hands. Hold on to God's unchanging hands. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 Romans chapter 12 how we are to deal with those who wrong us how we are allow, or how we are supposed to allow God to be the judge Romans chapter 12 and verse 14 Paul would write to these Christians in Rome bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. When you do good to your enemies, when you pray for those who curse you, when when, when you uplift those who put you down, you will heap burning coals on their head. You will bring shame and remorse to them. And we are not doing good to our enemies so that we will bring shame and remorse to them. That's not why we're doing good. Shame and remorse comes to them because in us, through us, they see the love, the grace, the mercy, and the compassion of God. And any time a sinful, wretched human being compares himself to the love, grace, mercy, and compassion of God, he can't help but be humble and feel remorse. I think about what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, just before he receives his commission to preach to the wicked nation of Israel. He sees the Lord God in all of his glory. And the text says, when he sees God in all of his glory, when he compares his wretched self to the perfection and the love and the grace and the mercy and compassion of God, when he sees that, he falls on his face and says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. That's what happens, that's what happens with our enemy when they see the love and the compassion of God in us. We'll bring them shame and remorse, not because that's our purpose, but because that is the only reaction that someone can can, can have when they see the love of God compared to their sinful selves. And that's the point, it's all about glorifying God. That's how we deal with conflict. We resist worldly wisdom, We see the good in others, we seek reconciliation, and we allow God to be the judge. And ultimately, he will get all glory. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. We praise you and we glorify you. We thank you so much for being our God and loving us so much and creating us in your image. We thank you so much for your love, your grace, your mercy, and your compassion. And we pray that as people here on this earth who deal with all sorts of conflict, we pray that we can have the same type of concern and care and compassion for our neighbors and those who have wronged us as you have had with us. We thank you so much for Jesus and his sacrifice and what it means to us. We thank you for this local church here that meets at Rolling Hills and and we pray that you continue to bless us and bless the leadership, the elders, and we thank you so much for all that you do for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In this passage in in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we see that David, according to our um, standards and according to our uh, sense of wisdom, David had every right to kill Saul, because Saul tried to kill him. But there in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we notice that David did not deal with Saul according to his offenses. He showed him compassion. And as I think about all of this, I recognize that I'm just as bad as Saul. Each and every time I sin, I put Christ on the cross again and again and again and again. Hebrews chapter 6. But thank the Lord... God the Father doesn't deal with me according to my offenses. God the Father doesn't punish me according to my transgressions and my iniquities. Psalm 103 and verse 10. God doesn't deal with us that way. The text says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is God's love for us. God's love is so profound that he sent his only begotten son to this earth to die for us. And we can be united with God and united with Christ and united with the Spirit by obeying the word of God, by believing that Jesus Christ is his son, making a public confession and having our sins completely washed away in the watery grave of baptism, coming up, walking in newness of life. If you've done that in time past, but you've fallen away and you would like to make things right, or if you have any other spiritual need this morning, please come to the front while we stand and sing the song of invitation.